Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining us this evening on Rollin' Bones, ladies and gentlemen, we have one of the best cartographers in the RPG industry. Uh, She's come highly recommended by several people who I trust. Uh, You know her and love her. You are probably her patrons. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm Rollin' Bones welcome to Alyssa Faden. What am I meant to say in response to that? That has to be like the biggest introduction I have ever, ever had. I think I need to get a snippet of that and just every time I walk into a room, play it ahead of me. Thank you so much. I'm humbled. <laughs> no problem at all. We, we pride ourselves on grand introductions and then the show just completely going downhill from there. So, (laughs) well, Alyssa, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And and just so you know, uh, so you can either thank them or curse them by the time this interview is over, it was Levi Combs in particular who who recommended you as the uh, the subject matter expert here when it comes to math. Well, I'm actually, I'm already having a fun time. What We're like 30 seconds in. I can see that you're an awesome guy. You've got an awesome show going on here. Levi is cool peeps. I like Levi quite a bit. So I'm very actually grateful that he introduced us. Absolutely. So Alyssa, we're going to start the show off the same way we start every single show. Uh, I've got these questions just to figure out kind of where you're coming from in this hobby. So Let's begin at the beginning. How did you get into RPGs? Uh, all right, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, honestly, through wargaming, which may seem weird, um, and I know a lot of people have heard this story before, so I'll, I'll keep it sort of semi-brief and on point, but you know, I was the geek nerd girl at school before it was cool to be a geek nerd at school. And um, I hung out with a bunch of guys at the chess club, math club, computer club, wargaming club. And um, I got into painting miniatures for them. And if I'm going to paint the miniatures now, I want to play. And they used to do these big, huge, sprawling Napoleonic games that would last for days, weeks, because you'd have the whole summer off and the entire, you know, living room floor, whatever, to play them. But um, they also went to a wargaming club. And I happened to be involved in a war game that night that was boring as molasses. It was the typical game where, um, you know, it's an hour per move and I'm the girl. So they just palm me off with some blend gun carriers or something. And it's like, there you go, love. Just sit over there with them. So, and I was like, 
Oh, I'm bored. And I love wargaming. So this was like not good. And I always remember, and it was like in one of these, like, you know, there's tennis courts around, then there's this little clubhouse in the middle of it. And there's all of these tables set up. But like, there's not that, it's almost like a library. There's not a huge amount of energy going on. And there was this little corner table and there was like four or five people squeezed around it. And I didn't know what they were doing. But all I heard at one point was this guy burst up and go, you killed my wraith with a plus one dagger. <laughs> and that, that right there was a turning point for me. Because I sat there and went, well, what are they doing? I want to play that game because they're having fun. And they were playing the basic Dungeons and Dragons, like Blue Blocks, Red, Red Box. And the very next day, I went off and I bought myself uh, both boxed editions and in our um, in the, our local toy store, which is mostly teddy bears and action, you know, GI Joes and stuff. But they had this one little section where they had some D and D, and they had like some modest little miniatures. And I'm like, I'm spending my work money on that. I'm getting get some minis. And I bought a skeleton, and I bought like a little paladin mini, and I bought a minotaur. I think I literally, that was it. Those were my that was beginning of my collection, mm-hmm. and I was off. That that was the start of my role playing um vocation uh, and hobby and it shaped my entire life from that point on gotcha yeah that's not too too dissimilar from from my entry i i got into tabletops through warhammer 40k um now now one just immediate question that springs to mind here whenever whenever i think of grognards war gamers i think of old people like mm. like big gray beards and stuff like that so these these high school war gamers were they like old souls at heart or were they just like regular teenagers but they like their napoleonic war games what was that I, like I, that, that's a great question i didn't realize it but until I left England. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was then that I understood that actually wargaming is huge in England. It's not even a European thing in general. In England, they love wargaming. Like there are many, many clubs in each town, uh, even to this day. And young and old. Now, yes, of course, you've got the old grognards and things like that. And that would happen to be that fateful night, Friday night, that, you know, playing in a grognard game. Um but there was a lot of young blood and still is to an extent. And this was even before, like, you know, your your Warhammers and your 40Ks and things like that. This predated all of that. But England for his, historical wargaming, it's massively popular, massively so. Gotcha. Yeah, that... Knowing what little I know about kind of that aspect of tabletops uh i i read uh, of dyson men by david awalt and he mentioned a, a big portion of kind of the early part of his history of rpgs was talking about wargaming in in england and with the history that's there it, it does make a little bit of sense but that that's definitely that's definitely an interesting aspect of the hobby over there that hasn't necessarily been as big over here aside from the games workshop stuff right and it, it, it is over here but you have to hunt to find it you know i'm in the pacific northwest right now and there is a 
convention each year up here called Enfilade. And for a while, I was actually the convention director. And they could pack a, a, a hotel convention area with something like 300 games and have them fully populated with hundreds of participants for like a two and a half day period. And it was amazingly popular. But it's not like there's a wargaming club here in town, you know, and that's what you get in England. It's a, it's part of the culture. And again, I didn't realize that that was the case until I left. And I sit there going, I kind of want to find a wargaming club. It's like, best of luck with that, honey. <laughs> you know, uh, now you, you can go to a local gaming store here and they, uh, you know, pre-COVID would uh, be set up with your, your Warhammers and even Flames of War and that type of thing, which is, Honestly, that's that's wargaming. So it's there. It's just a slightly different interest. Your Napoleonics is different. I actually remember taking my Napoleonic miniatures to that uh, gaming store once, and I set it up. And we're talking about thousands of miniatures, but you're, they're, they're very different. They're very colorful. You know, you've got guys with muskets and on horseback and things. And if you look at it, it's like, what am I looking at here? And but it grew a lot of interest because it, it, it's so unusual mm-hmm. over in England. Just it's just another war game, another Napoleonic war game. Absolutely. And a quick thank you to Fables RPG and Fail Squad Games TV for the follows, guys. Thank you so much, uh, Fables RPG. I'll have to check that out. Uh, so as for the next question, um, and this is one that people can uh, find difficult at times, but of the games that you've played, uh, what would be your favorite tabletop game? Ooh, that's a big question, Ryan. Um, so look, I've already admitted that I came from England back in the blue box, red box era, so I'm definitely putting some decades on myself right there. But let's just say it was in the 80s. Um, But the golden thing and the wonderful thing about the 80s and 90s for tabletop role-playing is there was an explosion, an explosion of games, you know? And so I had the good fortune of playing RuneQuest, Traveller, you know, uh, Gangbusters, Boot Hill, uh, 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 Bushido, uh, Chivalry and Sorcery. I could just go on. Uh, my my group, we were die at heart, Dungeons and Dragoners. Mm-hmm. But it's like we'd run a campaign for, let's say, 18 months or so. And we, it was, we were young, so you could play for, like, uh, every weekend, right? And you'd play for, like, all day and into the evening. And that's what we used to do. And we'd do this hardcore campaign. There was m- myself as a GM and there'd be another GM. And we'd alternate. But between between campaigns, we would try to insert something else and i had the good fortune when my group would just like really experiment with the vast plethora of awesome titles out there so if i'm going to answer that question i have to span that era and this era and it's a certain mm-hmm. nostalgia for this um and then there's one that drifts to the top um so th- from a nostalgia factor i i have to at least give a little bit of a nod towards the likes of RuneQuest, I think, because I played a lot of it back in the day. It was a very different type of game back in the day to something like Dungeons & Dragons. I would have to say Dungeons & Dragons, including 5th edition today, 
is right up there because I, I've been there since the first edition and I've come through the various iterations, including a little Pathfinder jaunt and back again. Um, and so it's still with me even to this day and is part of the staple. In fact, a lot of those books behind me over there are like Pathfinder and Dungeons and Dragons books. But the one, the game that has spanned the decades with me from first edition all the way through to its current edition is actually Call of Cthulhu. That's the game I absolutely adore. Gotcha. We we have had so many people on the show who are in love with Call of Cthulhu played, Call of Cthulhu forever. You know, it's it's one of their favorite games of all time and Every time I'm ashamed to say I've actually never played Call of Cthulhu. It's a very different game. Um, I'm not necessarily in a bad way. It's just it's a different style game. And I think once you experience it, you go, oh, this, this is kind of like neat. Because it's not all hack and slash, even though there is and can be combat. Uh, in fact, some combats you want to actively avoid. Uh, like you just don't want to be part of it. In fact, if you even see the thing that you could be fighting. You're probably already now gone insane. And it's very, very story and narrative driven. And I've found a lot of people fall in love with that aspect of it, especially if you've got the props and things like that for players to figure out what's going on. And it almost becomes this like murder mystery like type thing where you're connecting the dots and then it starts to evolve and you realize, oh, there's actually cultists in town. What are they up to? And then you find out that there's something going on in the story. It's that. And the pacing of it and the narrative. I've, I've actually had the good fortune of having um, non-role players overhear a game I'm running and then want to play. So it's a great way of actually pulling people in. Because it's dice rolling, sure, but not to the same degree as any edition of, let's say, Dungeons & Dragons. Hmm. So it's, it's way more, I think, accessible as well but even if you're a seasoned role player like sitting down at a table slip and it could be any era right it could be medieval it could be rome with cthulhu invictus it could be gaslight it can be modern it can be futuristic and this whole concept of the call of cthulhu is still there still runs through it and that i think is that massive draw when you get into it is you're you're playing in a horror game then and I think it's just it's just fantastic, and it's so versatile. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Fail Squad Games TV and chat would like to know, Alyssa, how you have memories of the '80s when you're clearly only 21. <laughs> well, that's see, that's the second smooth thing that you guys have said to me right now. I read a lot of books about the '80s, and I've watched Stranger Things, so that's the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Experiencing the 80s the same way I did. <laughs> so going back to those early days of role playing, uh, if you can't remember the first character, that's fine. Uh, but either your first character or your first memorable character, who were they? Okay. So my apologies for this, because I'm going to answer this one in two parts as well, because we actually played Dungeons & Dragons wrong um when we first started so the the only person at my school that had dungeons and dragons was actually me and i don't say that as a boast or anything it was just very early apparently from my town 
uh, for Dungeons and Dragons to be a thing. And so the interpretation of the rules running the game is on me. Well, I had the rules wrong. I had them all kinds of wrong. I had hit points and hit dice mixed up in my head. I couldn't possibly fathom that a dragon should have 13 D8s as hit points. That seems wrong. They must mean 13 hit points. So my monsters were way underpowered. And also, for some reason, and I don't know why, I figured that every player had his own party. And it must be the war gamer in me coming out. So if you've got six or eight players around the table and they've got a party of like 10 each, we would literally have 60 or 80 characters on the table. <laughs> no joke. No joke. No exaggeration. Well, they were just buzzsaw through everything. It was, it, was, it, was a war, it was a skirmish game. They were just destroying things. It was ridiculous. And we played like that, I want to say, for years. Until one day we went to like the local museum. They had an open day and there was a tabletop RPG mini convention. And we went and we sat down and there was this guy called Jeff who introduced, who, who basically we all sat there. So me and my group of friends, we used to having like this whole party each and we're so excited. And he pushes across these immaculately painted miniatures, one each. And I remember to this day, we sat there going, where were the others? What, where's the rest of the party? And we explained to him how we played. And I also remember he's such a gentle soul. He was like, try it my way and let, let's see if you like it at the end and that converted us so like my early early days are full of parties not characters so <laughs> so when when we did actually start playing it correctly and we're like oh one character each oh that's why everyone has stats because we didn't use stats because we've got too many bloody characters mm -hmm. um so then after that my most memorable characters, of course, I think we all remember them to a degree. Mine was actually a cleric. She was called Valashir Dolceras. I rolled very, very high on a social standing. I rolled like a hundred. And the GM said, you are the princess of this land. Uh, I can't make you the queen, but your, your mum and dad are the king and queen. And she got to something like 16th level as an almost gold moon-like character. She was the, the big healer of the group. At, at one point, she had a helmet that allowed her to have psionics as well. It got a little bit out of control. She had an incredible staff of healing, you know, that type of stuff. But she, I always have a soft spot for her. Valashir Dulceras. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always great when you have that that first character who you end up taking pretty, pretty far and you get all kinds of cool stuff for them and they always get to stick out in your memory. It's, it's I the... still have that character sheet, actually. I still have her with me. And, and, and of course, you know, there's an old character sheet now and there's sections that have almost been completely erased through. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I take that character sheet, I go, ah, yeah, good times. Yep, it's it's great to see that not everyone's uh, first character died in three sessions. <laughs> I think, I, I, well, and the, part of the truth of this, too, is I was the GM, you know, for a lot of this. Uh, so I want to say I probably went easily three, four years before I ever actually got to play. And I love GMing, by the way. I, mean, I genuinely love it. Nowadays, I actually like playing probably more than I did back then. 
But yeah, it was many years before I actually got to sit down at the table. And at that point, our group has matured quite a bit. And we've kind of got through maybe that awkward phase of TPKs and stuff. Hmm. And even though we still would have them occasionally, as a group, as players and as a GM, we would we started to understand what made a good game and what people wanted to get out of that game. And just wiping everyone out was not it. We kind of got that past that point. So Valashia, I think, had the advantage in that we got through all of that before I sat down as a player and, okay, entertain me, you know? Hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, speaking of uh, GMing, a lot of us who do a lot of our GMing, uh, you know, mostly we get stuck behind the screen. We have these favorite NPCs that tend to show up in all of our games. They make their way in one way or another. Alyssa, do you have a forever NPC that travels from game to game, system to system? I did. I did. Now, more recently, I've been running a lot of Call of Cthulhu, and I've actually been running the Masks of Nyala Hatep, uh, which is this big, huge, world-hopping campaign. So while I have a repeating character that I've actually been bringing into that one, um, she's actually more of a recent addition. Back in the day, though, uh, back in England, um, I did. And it was actually, honestly, a little bit by accident. So I don't know if you and the audience have ever seen the film The Keep. And there's a book by the same name, The Keep. And long story short, it's basically World War II and some uh, German soldiers uh, take up refuge in this keep in, in like a Romanian village or something. And there's these crosses embedded in the walls. And one of them is silver. And they don't know this. The villagers are trying to tell them. But the one silver cross is actually keeping a demon at bay that's in like entombed and imprisoned within this keep. And this is whole backstory to it. I love that. I love that so much. I read the book, I watched the film, and I brought that character, that demon, into my law of my world. I got to a point where I'm writing my own sort of setting, and I decided, well, what if, what, in fact, let me take a step backwards. I was running a Shogun game, and I had the keep in it, and I had this demon in it. So I was basically, basically recreating the book, but in a game, and it was a Shogun game. And I always remember um, one of the villagers, now this is a humble peasant, right, warns the samurai, who's a character, um, don't remove the cross, don't remove the cross, bad things will happen. Well, you know, this is a, a player who's playing a samurai. He's like, don't you tell me what to do. I will chop off your head. And he ripped the cross out of the wall. And, of course, that results in the demon getting free. And I destroyed everything. I destroyed the party. I destroyed the world. I do this big, huge, uh, uh, like narrative on what happens of this, like this demon running rampage. End. End of story. <laughs> Until years later, I want to run a Dungeons and Dragons, and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I had a world that is post this demon getting loose, and I tie it in to that. Mm -hmm. And I actually put, I put it like hundreds of years later, the demon's now gone, but the world has gone through this dark era of the demon basically ruling this world. What would that be like? Well, that character, that demon, I, I called him Rassalom. He's the one that kept coming back. 
And so, you know, I'd won for a year and a half. And I think the first one, they actually had to fight Russell on because he was getting resummoned. And then the second campaign, I would skip forwards 50 years or so. And they're playing different characters, but we're staying in the same world. And I think the next campaign, it was like the daughter of Rassilon. And she's trying to bring back her father, you know? So he was definitely a returning character as much as when here in the United States, when I was running around 2010, 2013, I put Rassilon in the game. Even though my, these American players now, they had no idea who this guy was. I put him in the game again. So he would be my returning character. Gotcha. That's that's actually pretty cool. And, and one of... One of my favorite things about this hobby and, and the way that people, um, you know, interface with it at times, the fact that a dungeon master can, you know, build on a world like that, that kind of stuff is awesome, in my opinion. So I'm that honestly, that sounds like a ton of fun. It, it, it was incredible fun because it was also, and I acknowledge, by the way, Ryan, that I was very fortunate in this, but the, these are players that I had been playing with since like 14 or 15 years of age, and now we're 25, 26, 27 years of age. And so we're talking about easily 10 years of role playing together. So our characters and our stories and our world, that was ours now. You know, and it's the type of thing that even when we're now older, we've got jobs. I would go and see a friend of mine and he's running a clothing store. He's now he's, he's a manager of the clothing store now. And we'd go downstairs. He would like, every, let everyone else run. And we'd sit there for hours just talking about the game, you know, mm-hmm. because we were always, always, always so excited about it. And I think it's because we were able to play together in the same world and just bounce between GMs for years. Yeah, we had a, a similar situation. Uh, the the group that I started gaming with, I gamed with them for three, four years, and uh, it was a similar situation where we were all kind of playing in the same game world. And yeah, stuff like that is is always great, and I, and I love it. It there was a I always remember in like whatever game it was, and I actually think Son Sonar Son. Sonaria Cronias or something like that. Uh, she was the daughter of Rassilon and the players didn't know. And she actually joined the party as an NPC and was adventuring them for a while. But she was actually working against them and they didn't realize it. And I always remember there was this one point where they figured it out and like the players were genuinely, oh, what? <laughs> the daughter of Rassilon? It was such a great moment. Mm-hmm. Now you've alluded to it a little bit in in your discussion of uh, of that particular recurring character, um, but if you had to describe your play style as a GM and then also as a player, you know, h- how would you describe it? Okay, well, I am now, you know, I am some decades into my role playing uh, history, so honestly, I- I'm going to describe it as okay. It- it's it's mature. But I mean that in that, I've got, let's say if I've got 30 years of role playing behind me as a player, I, I I have gone through the characters that are annoying. I've gone through the, the hunt for a unique personality and ended up just being annoying at the table or, or useless to the party. I've done that and been able to grow from it. But I, I'm now at a point that as a player, I always want to play something that is 
unique, different than what I've done before, uh, whether it be a class, a race, a lot of the time, a gender, a combination of all of those things. Uh, and I like to think that I'm a reasonable role player around the table, you know, and I've definitely gone through those moments where you're throwing a dice because they're betraying you, but I recognize myself for being a bad player at that moment or blaming another player on a personal level for something that happened to my character. I've gone through that. So I'm now, I think I'm a, a, a nice to have at the table. I'm very respectful of the other players getting play time um, and opportunity to speak and to role play. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't seek to dominate the table. And these are traits, I think, that come from me, my GMing side of things. So, yeah, I want to I say that I'm a, I'm a nice player to have at the table. I'm, I'm going to role play my little heart out, but be extremely respectful of the group, other players, but then also that we're all there cohesively moving in the right direction. And I'm not going to be the player that sits there and goes, I'm chaotic evil. I'm going to destroy you all. And ergo, destroy the game and the GM's work. I'm, I'm so far beyond that at this point, but only because of the mistakes I've made on the way. Um, and as a GM, uh, I honestly, I take the... We're all there together. We're all players there together. I want the players to have an absolutely blast of a time. I tend to be pretty heavy on the narrative, but also open. I like a fairly sandbox style game, no matter what I'm running. I want the players to have a, the sense of choice, even if it's the illusion of choice. And I want them to be rewarded for good ideas. I am very open-minded as a GM because I truly believe that part of the joy of being a GM is the story is going to unfurl for me as much as it is for the players. I've got my game. I've got my plot. I've got my actors doing their thing. But if the players thwart that, that's okay. Now I'm get, I'm riding this journey as well with everyone. So I'm as a GM, I want to say that I'm, fairly open I, I'm, I'm literally I'm, I'm riding on this carriage as well with the players and I allow that I allow this flow to just happen and I want the players to feel awesome you know and not to the point where I'm just throwing coins at everyone you get a magic sword you get a magic sword everyone gets a magic sword I've done that I've done that it's, it's terrible because that just that ruins the game in the long run but there are other ways of players feeling great because they got their moment in the sun. They got their moment to be able to role play without being interrupted. You know, it's all about being able to keep energy at the table, being able to bounce between players, not staying on this one person. And then you go over here, but you skip that person. And if you can orchestrate that, and I feel like I'm a good uh, conductor in that way, then everyone is involved and everyone is having fun with it. So I don't know how you would one word that as a GM style, but that's kind of how I approach it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, real quick, because it's blowing up in chat here. Uh, first of all, thank you to Pax, Recon, and uh, Jack for following. And it looks like uh, Alazilla in chat says that you are a uh, fun GM. I have had the good fortune to um, have met Ella at several conventions. Uh, I consider her to be a friend in real life. She has run for me. I have run for her. And we do some virtual games together as well. So she has first-hand experience. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Now, 
with kind of the the breadth of RPG experience that you've had, I know this next question will be very difficult, especially since you've dedicated so much of your time to this hobby. But people who do stuff like this, you know, we have a lot of fond memories tied up with gaming. If you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? What a great question. What a great question. And do you know do you know what it is? And I've had some great memories. I've had some really, really great memories. And you know, and some the way you could sit in a bar and talk and just laugh and joke and but actually my fondest memory was when I was GMing. Mm-hmm. And so it's not my character. And it was the first time that I saw a player be truly heroic and selfless and it was from an actual human being that i didn't think was capable of because he was a jock at school you know he was the type of guy that actually wouldn't talk to me at school but he loved playing the game and it the players were genuinely escaping like a castle an underground castle because bad juju was after them and you don't often actually get players run away from things, right? Especially in Dungeons and Dragons. Players are always, if it's there in front of me, it's XP. There's there's a lot of that. But these, my my group were like, we got to go. And so they were escaping. And this one character, his name was Paul Murphy. I always remember to this day, he stopped at the bottom of like the stairs leading up the tower. And he was like, you guys go. I'll hold this. And it was like so uncharacteristic of the, the, the human being, the man himself. Mm-hmm. But it was also that true heroic moment. It's like it's what gaming is all about. Even as a GM, I was like, wow, he's 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 ditching. And he, he was like 11th, 12th level at something at this point. This is a lot of time is in this character. And he genuinely meant it. He was like. I'll buy your time. And it's that you could almost imagine the orchestral music building up behind the scenes, the party hovering on the stairs as they're about to go and then fading around the corner. And then all they can hear is the clash of steel below and then an eventual scream. I was so blown away by that moment. His next re-roll, I gave him some stat boosts, you know, just for good karma, you know, bring it forward. It was, it was a great moment. Absolutely. That, Stuff like that, when it happens at the table, those truly cinematic moments and those truly uh, like emotionally touching moments where you forget, uh, for, for good or for ill, that these aren't your actual personalities. These are just entities that exist on a piece of paper. Exactly. Those... Can I give you one more, Ryan? Can yeah, I give you one it. more? Absolutely. Because it actually relates to the Rassalom demon I was talking about earlier in the first multi-year campaign that I ran. Um, and I don't want this to be one of those tell us about your character and everyone's like, oh, oh. but it was another great moment. But it was one uh, where luck came into play. And it was like the party eventually fights Raslan, big, huge demon. And it was a big, huge battle. It was truly the forces of good versus evil. And, you know, the, long story short, the party was getting their butt kicked. They like the the, the the champion would go down, the paladin went down, the thief went down. Just everyone is getting demolished by this Rassalom character. And it was left to 
a uh, and they had this magic sword which would stop him growing in strength from any pain and suffering around him he would actually regenerate from that but as long as you had this sword it would stop that the problem is the only person in the group that could wield this sword went down mm-hmm. and it was left to one mage who said can i can i just pick up that sword and just swing at him <laughs> and this is back in in the day where like mages aren't allowed to use swords yep. which is kind of ridiculous but okay so as a gm i was like yeah yeah you absolutely can but you need a 20 to hit this guy and this was good. this was the end of the game mm-hmm. the party's literally facing a tpk and the player rolled and it came up a 20 and he actually killed the demon with that one blow and it saved the game it saved the whole party and everyone just erupted as you could possibly only imagine. That mm-hmm. was that was definitely a moment. Oh yeah. That I can imagine we've had moments like that at, at my tables before, but yeah, that that kind of stuff, when that goes off, just that twenty at the right time, especially in a moment like that, oh my god. When that... all the chips are down, right? Everything's mm-hmm. on the table. And you get that twenty, and that that was a powerful moment. I was, and of course it was luck and everything. Or was it? What was it? That divine, you know, intervention. Mm-hmm. It definitely, definitely, definitely was a great moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we go from the highest highs to the lowest lows because while we play with some truly fantastic people in you know this hobby. We also play with some people who we don't quite mesh with. And then there are the people who are just outright terrible. And for the worst of these people, we have this term of that guy. So, Alyssa, if there is a that guy story that you are comfortable telling on the show, uh, please do so. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, Because I've actually had a few that guys in my <laughs> time. Um but honestly, part of it was when I moved to the Pacific Northwest here in the States, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have a group, right? Um, but there's a healthy gaming community around here, and they happened to be doing a big, huge meetup at the time. And so there was literally, what, 30, 40, 50 people that all got together. We split off into different gaming groups. And we split off into one group that had about 12 people in it, and over time, they just whittle out. Their life gets in the way. They're just not a very good fit. And we get down to like a core six people that were actually pretty, pretty cool. Like we started to become real good buds and we all played pretty well together. But the, this one guy for me, and I'll keep him nameless, was a Debbie Downer. It just, uh, well, I suppose, we, it was like having Eeyore at the table constantly every role every encounter in game or out of game everything was well we could do that i guess and it was just a downer when we're all trying to have fun even if it's fun at the face of a dragon coming at you we're there for fun and energy and vibrancy and oh well if you're gonna kill us i suppose this is a time to do it and it on we we suffered that guy for years for years and it got to the point where he would like you know he would hang out at whoever house was hosting at the time mm-hmm. and he would stay there until like four o'clock in the morning 
and it, like, it got to a point where we, like, we all met to one side it's like we can't do this anymore we just can't do it because it's, it's just like killing us literally it's like he's sucking our souls he is an energy vampire he's Colin um, Robinson totally exactly <laughs> Yes, yes. So, yeah, that was probably, I mean, you, yes, I've gone to conventions where there's been a very disruptive player at the table. Of course, we've always had that one player who's like played the thief and then gone running off into the dungeon on his own to do the adventure on his own. You know, mm -hmm. there's always that type of thing. But I honestly want to say that type of thing can, with the right GM, be controlled. Hold on a minute there, Gavin. Let's come back to you. Party, what are you doing? You know, that can mm -hmm. be controlled. But this this one guy, he was like, whoa. It's like he, he really sucked the energy around the table. Uh, so, yeah, he, he's my one dude. Gotcha. And Alex and chat, uh, I do not envy you for playing with a that party. That sounds like a nightmare. I, she's actually told me that story, and she had a that party, yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, she did. And then, Recon, are you trying to imply that you are that guy? <laughs> <laughs> War Wargaming Recon is the sweetest soul on the planet. Wargaming, stop that. All right, so last of these introductory questions, and I'll tell you, Alyssa, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be, uh, but if, okay. you, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anything on a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Like, like, no bounds, no limitations. Go hog wild. Any, anything. Okay, this is gonna this is gonna be really lame. This is gonna be really lame. So my apologies to everyone. But I'm actually a huge fan of history, and particularly Roman history, mm -hmm. and particularly the era of Caesar and Augustus. And the first couple of emperors thereafter. And I have a huge soft spot for Caesar. I'm sorry to say, but I do. And I have a huge spot, soft spot for Cicero, uh, the, uh, the writer of those times. And if I could have anything, I would love, honestly, just to have like a handprint or something from one of those guys. And that is, I know is super, super, super lame. But if I could, I'd, I'd probably never wear it. I'd never wash it. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. But I, I would love that. Just to be touched by one of those. I see them as great men. Gotcha. Definitely. I I have heard that Cicero has some very interesting writings and stuff. So I, I definitely need to... Honestly, Roman history is one of those things that I've just kind of let uh, pass me by a little bit as far as reading up on it. So I, I should probably read more on early roman history because for, it for seems me i ended up i ended, uh, ended up reading all about like cato uh, younger cato the elder and so forth just uh, so many books just on roman history in general <laughs> um but i ended up reading the book about cicero um i want to say like seven eight times something like that because he's he's almost behind the scenes character he's like mm. he's the the politician so to speak 
uh, that was kind of embroiled up in things, but he was never an instigator for stuff. And he had such a fascinating life and such a fascinating time. Yeah, I just, I, I love that guy. Gotcha. Now, with the introductory questions out of the way here, um, obviously, you know, being a GM, at some point you had to have gone, I need a map, I'll draw this map. When did you discover that your maps were top quality and that it was something you could continue to do and do professionally? Seriously? Like about 10, 12 years ago, that recently. I was actually drawing maps in the 80s and the 90s for our own game. I, I didn't run other people's material, not not because I was a snob or anything, but no, we love our own world. Um, so that world needs to be mapped uh, from a world level, a, con- a continent level, a regional level, a town level. I've got to draw that. It's all on me. And there is no internet, right? <laughs> so that's when I started drawing my own stuff. And I always remember it was, you know, back, let's say 2006, 2008, something like that on Facebook, there was a group there of role players, and one of them shared a map that he had drawn, and it was a it was a pretty good map. I mean, you know, I, but it got a lot of attention, and it was like this is kind of cool. This is a whole bo- a group of virtual people here digging on this map. That's fantastic. But I'm extremely modest as a person, so I was like, maybe I should share one of mine. Maybe. So I scanned it and I kind of pushed it across the table, so to speak. Um, people lost lost it. They just they were falling out of the seats, and I honestly was taken aback. I was like, uh, "You you dig this?" And they were like, "Do you have any others?" I was like, "Yeah, I've got dozens over here." So I started sharing them, and it just blew them away. It just it it, it sort of took them all by storm. And then before you know it, one of them said, "Can you draw me one?" And that was the start of it, right there. And I, I had no idea that people would react that way at all. Because I, I've, I never, I've never looked at my own work and gone, this is fantastic. I do nowadays, but I'm big-headed nowadays. <laughs> but, you know, back then, I, I, I never looked at it and gone, yeah, yeah, look at this. I never, I never shared them with anyone prior to that. So, so that moment of, like, wow, people actually like these was, like, just strange. And then to have someone say, will you do me one? I uh, me sure I guess, and then honestly it, it grew from there because you know I was doing like these private little commissions for folks for their own role playing games, and I'm sort of knocking them out ink on paper, everyone's sort of loving what I'm doing, and then Monty Cook popped up, and said, "Can you do me one? Um, or can you do me a little sort of map? I've got a convention game, and I'd love a map for it." And Wolfgang Bauer from Cobalt Press popped up and said, I, I need a city map for this project I'm working on. Will you uh, will you draw me one? And that, honestly, it was probably Wolfgang that changed the whole playing field for me because I I draw my maps ink on paper, or used to, and but I never colored them. They were always black and white. Uh, but Monty, uh, sorry, uh, Wolfgang wanted his in color. And I was like, well, I can't color this in crayons or something. This is going to look terrible. I've got to step up my game. And I went off and I bought this Cintiq 24-inch HD Touch. It's basically, it's a monitor. It's a touch monitor, but it lies flat. It's a Wacom tablet. It was a lot of money. And I did that 
purely for Wolfgang Bauer. Uh, but then once I got it, it just it just propelled my skill set and everything else after it. So it was almost an accident. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I myself am guilty of going, I'm going to get this this big tool uh, for this one project and then going, well, I've got it now. Let's uh, let's see what I can do with that. The most recent example of that was my airbrush. Ah, nice. Nice. I actually bought an airbrush, uh, I want to say a couple of years ago now. The whole kit, caboodle, the whole nine yards. I have yet to use it because I'm actually a little bit scared that I'm going to end up spraying the house and stuff. So I've never broken it out. Yeah, my, my wife got me uh, my, my airbrush for uh, Christmas. And uh, so, Recon, I, I don't have, like, one of the uh, big name brand airbrushes because I'm just now learning how to do it. Uh, so I, I don't remember the brand off the top of my head. It's sitting over there in a box because um, we're about ready to move. But I got it so I could do OSL. And I was afraid of using it for the longest time. Uh, like when I first got it, I was like, I, this is not gonna, this is not gonna go well. And so I primed minis with it and it worked really well. And then I finally did the OSL effect with it and it turned out great. So oh, nice. Uh, as long as you set up some kind of booth or something, like you, you can stick it in a Rubbermaid bin or I've got a booth with a filter on it. Um, as long as you stick it in one of those, it doesn't get on anything else, and it's a lot easier than I thought it would be. So uh, airbrushing is fun. I just I just need to do it. I've got actually, I don't know if you can see it, but Nayala Hatep himself sitting over there, oh. and he, he's going to need an airbrush treatment. He's way too big for a brush. He's going to need that little bit of love. And he's been sitting there for the last year because I just – don't want to pick up the airbrush but maybe this conversation will switch things around for me maybe i'll finally man up gotcha cool so as we discussed off air before we started the show when it comes to maps and using that as a visual tool in gaming this is a new concept to me when i started gaming i was purely doing theater of the mind with some friends at a uh, a game store so we didn't have a lot of room for maps or anything like that. So it was all theater of the mind. Recently, however, you know, I got I got into painting miniatures a couple of years ago. That got me into terrain and maps and stuff like that. And then recently, prepping for a game last year, I decided that I needed to actually map out the region that I was playing in. And... I was terrified of, you know, I, I'm not a great artist on paper. I, I'm not good at this kind of thing. How, how do I visualize this? Fortunately, there are online tools. Uh, but all of that to say, what effect do you think a map, and not even let's not even make a good map, because we know what a good map can do. What does any map of an RPG region or the region of play do for the minds of the players, in your opinion? I I actually think that um, it's not required, but it really adds an, a, a significant enhancement. And here's why. It's not even about the quality of the map. Hmm. or Because a map at its core is meant to be informational. 
uh, you know, a mall map is informational. A map, uh, when you go to a game convention, is informational. Well, a map of the region that you're in is informational. It's what is around that we know of and where is it positioned in relationship to me? Hmm. And are there any connecting roads or rivers or impeding forestry? And I think that's what that type of map adds. Because I love theatre of the mind. We've already sort of discussed that I love Call of Cthulhu. And that's very theatre of the mind. And you can absolutely run a very successful game just using theatre of the mind. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But there is a difference between describing, well, to the east, on the other side of a large forest, there is a small town with one or two villages dotted along the way. But there's a massive gorge that separates it. Well, okay, you can visualize that. I get it. I get it. But the minute you put down a map that shows the shape of the forest, the size of the forest, the path that that road meanders, the relative positions of those villages next to each other, and where are they in relationship to the actual forest and each other? And, oh, wait, there's actually a river coming through here as well. And, oh, there's some mountains to the north. And what's this down here? No, there's a coastline. It... It, it just paints this great canvas where the players understand now where they are in, the, are in the grand scheme of things. And again, it can be surrounded by unknown lands and the dark lands and the forgotten area. It can be surrounded by all of that, but the players understand where they fit in, in the immediate sort of area. And I think that helps a lot in, in almost any game area. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned earlier that you like to run sandbox-style games, so do you find that a, a map uh, of a broad region is helpful in kind of engaging the players of, ooh, I want to see what's over there. That region looks interesting. Let's let's see what's over there. Do, do you find that a map kind of gives more hooks to the exploration aspects of a sandbox game? I think it absolutely can. Um, and I think to a certain a certain degree, uh, depending on the style of the game now, um, it can almost be required. So for something like my world-spanning Call of Cthulhu, uh, that, well, these are more modern characters and they would understand, uh, they would be able to even get hold of maps and understand the layout of Peru or how they're getting to Peru and where they're landing and their path of getting to one location to another location and the fact that they're going to have to take mules or whatever. And so that becomes a tool for them to be able to plan. If we go back into a more sort of medieval sort of fantasy-like setting, it, you can still have areas where things are unknown or the uncharted region, the Scots live up there or whatever. Um, that alone, you're always going to get the player that goes, well, what, what if we actually go in there and see what's there. It, it starts to give them that freedom to to go. And in fact, I, I think the more sandbox you are, the more that they're going to want that thirst of knowledge of where can I go? Hmm. And that's where you just lay down your map and go, this is the world that you are currently aware of. And you, they're going to say, well, okay, well, we could go here. We could go there. Well, if, if our adventure is over there, but what if we go over here first? Oh, what's this tower? Why is that tower called that name? And let them go. Let them just uh, explore the world around them. Yeah, and this is a... It, it's kind of a cliche of fantasy literature and movies, but when it comes to an RPG... 
um, setting and engaging your players, one thing that I found is if you're making a map, uh, the, the quickest way to get players to go to a specific region is three, three words, here be dragons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or you do the, like, uh, Magellan-era sea monster out in the ocean. I did that they'll once. they'll go as, there. Yeah, they'll go there. Yeah, I did, I did that once as just, like, decoration on one of my maps. And they're like, is there a sea monster there? And I was like, there's a sea monster there. There's going to be a sea monster there now. <laughs> I, I, the, I've even had it where I had the Valley of the Lich Kings in mind, mm. which now I think with that World of Warcraft has come out. It's like an old hackneyed phrase mm. but back in the 80s it was kind of new and i had a valley of the lich kings in there and it, it, my players were like let's good luck and i'm like <laughs> not lich king lich king so what are you doing it's like let's let's go let's go take a look yeah so they will every time what level were they and not high enough <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the best. It's like in, in, in some video games, I think uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild was the most recent to do this. You can literally run down the hill in the first area and run into the final boss. Oh! <laughs> oh that, that, that sounds like a Dark Souls encounter <laughs> <Yep>. right there. <laughs> or in uh, Witcher 3 was my favorite of these, where you just had that big open map to explore... And you go off in the woods, you find that little monster icon, and you look, and there's this giant, uh, like, demon or a leshen walking around, and you're like, no, nope, not him. He's got the red skull next to his name. Uh, what do I <laughs> right, do Right, and it's, it, it's that type of thing, right? I mean, and even, like, your, your uh, any of the, uh, like, Skyrim game, uh, you know, it, it's basically plops you down. And it makes a suggestion where to go, but it's like, well, what if I want to go over there instead? That looks really interesting. And I love that. As a player, I really love it. And I try to provide that as a GM as well. Uh, now, I will say this, Ryan, that I did have a GM once that was so open world. For me, it stifled the game mm. because it was like, uh, like plop, go. And there, there was no, there was no plot. There was no anything. It was just like, do what you want. And it's like, but I don't know what to do. And it was like, that's the point. And we all like got a little bit stifled because it was almost like it was too much. It's like, yeah, but just give us something to hook us along a little bit. It's like, yep, you make your own adventure in this world. And that, that kind of went to an extreme for me. Mm -hmm. There has to be that little bit of a lure, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why uh, I know a lot of people get upset about this kind of gaming cliche but that's why you meet in a tavern is such an enduring trope because in taverns there are people who might have things for you to do and there's there's an innkeeper who everyone comes in and out so he knows what's going on in the immediate region there's probably a bounty board or something like that there's there's ways to get your players involved that will lead to a series of their own decisions leading to that kind of open sandbox exactly. world. Exactly. But it yeah. has but you to just give them a nudge. Yeah. 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 You have to kind of like funnel, do the like inverse funnel thing where you start narrow and, and expand from there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, 
when it comes to world building, and I know when you're doing kind of work for hire stuff, uh, this process might be different. But when you are building a world, at what stage of the uh, building process do you draw a map? Is it fairly early on, or is it one of the kind of last things you do? Brilliant question. And I, I want to say uh, it actually, there's different types of maps. World map, continent map, regional maps, city maps, and counter maps. Hmm. And the more focused I get, the, the, let's say the more zoomed in we are, the later in the process they happen for me. Hmm. Um, my, for me, part of my creative process with my current world is I drew the world map first. And I had this concept of um, what the world was about. And so I drew that. And I used that as my inspiration for where do I want to zoom in on? And where do I want to focus this game now? Now, of course, as part of the creative process, you got your own notes and things like that. I want to start this on like an island in the middle of like a reef area, almost Pirates of the Caribbean style. But where am I going to put that reef within this world? I kind of like this country. I know what this country is about. I'm going to put the reef here. So I, for me, it becomes part of my creative process, part of my canvas hmm. to start with that. Now, I then dove straight into where are the players going to start? And I need to draw that town. And so I immediately did that. And then I actually kind of oddly backed out a little bit and then drew the island and then drew the reef in a little bit more detail. But I at least had that broad canvas of the world to understand where they were located. Then I actually drew the map of where is the, at least the start of the game going to be focused? And it was the island and the town because it was a fairly sort of focused at the beginning sort of campaign start. And if otherwise, I think in the past I've done, you know, they are going to be starting in this town. There's going to be a town map, but in this region and I'll add a region map. So I typically do that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's. One of the reasons why I ask is, you know, I I am currently in the process both of resuming a, a, a campaign that I've been running and also writing a fantasy novel. And one of the things that I did in kind of building my world was build out a map because what a map in my mind does is, you know, once you place things in a region you then have a better idea of what people in that region are like and and what they do for a living so you have coastal towns those are fishermen most likely people in central regions grasslands most likely are farmers people in the mountains probably are miners and a lot of that you know like like you said can help with your creative process as far as once you know what's there then it's easy to build around, you know, what people are doing there and, and kind of. And, and how they relate focus. to the people around them, yep. too. And even if your story or your uh, game does not touch upon those other areas, even if you don't have a player that sits there and goes, OK, so what what I get that we're in this like country, but what's to the west of us? Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have that as a player, 
you understand it. And I think as a GM, you should have an understanding of that. It's like, okay, so where is this country in relationship to other countries? What relationship do they have with each other? Is it hostile? Has there been years of war between them? Is it very passive? Mm-hmm. Um, I think as a either a writer or a GM, because I think they're very closely related you, you, I think you need to have an understanding of that because it only helps you paint a much richer canvas for your players who are now in this world. Because, you know, one day you're going to sort of sit there and say, well, uh, this dark-skinned gentleman comes walking in. You think he's from the land of Govothel. And you're going to have a player go, what? What? Where's this? What, 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 what place is this? And you need to know even if they don't. Absolutely. And uh, Alex Vixen in chat, the the Here Be Dragons story, that is uh, exactly something that my wife would say at the table. So, uh, Elfie, if you are, if you're observing chat, that sounds very much like you. But, yeah, I mean, you're right in, in... thinking of uh you know writers and and game masters being very similar in fact a lot of a lot of my friends who are game masters are also writers uh so that thinking along those lines does actually help and and you know having the region mapped out definitely helps um i will say though too this that you know my husband uh jack who's actually in the chat he actually thinks about his creative process a little bit differently than I do. Cause I do think about worlds and I think about countries and I think about the relationship between countries and what it's like to live in a country. But Jack actually comes at it from a different angle that I think is equally relevant because for Jack, it's all about who lives in this town, who are the characters in this town? Like what are the, what are the neighborhoods and the personalities and how do they relate to each other? And I actually struggle with that. I could draw a town. I actually really struggle with, let's call it, the life of the town, uh, the politics and the true interesting characters of the town. Uh, the more focused we get, the more I struggle with that. So Jack is the type of person that can actually write that level. Now, granted, we can actually meet in the middle now. Okay, here's a town, Jack. Write about that. Um but it's it's like if you were going to do a um, adventure or a campaign that was pretty heavily focused in a city or in the immediate area of a town, understanding that town, let's call it the lifeblood of that town, mm-hmm. I think, and having a map of that town and even the little neighborhoods would be just as crucial. Yep. Yeah, and especially um, kind of going in the opposite direction of what we've been talking about with uh, sandbox games where a whole continent is open let's say you're running a uh, a game something like thieves world or lankmar where you are in the confines of a uh, single city knowing the ins and outs the you know who who's in charge of what regions what's going on where in that city becomes even more important uh what when you kind of shrink down your game world into a more contained space because they won't be constantly going, uh, your, your players won't be constantly going just kind of from region to region, town to town, where things can kind of be glossed over. You've got a very small space to work with, and in that space, you need uh, life to, to be existing and, and for them to interact with. And 
it, it's a smaller machine, but with more intricate parts in a lot of ways. It has, it, it, the parts are way more intricate. That's a perfect word for it. Perfect word for it. Um, it it's, and that, I will fully admit, I actually struggle with that. Um, I mean, I could do it, sure, but it doesn't have the depth of color that, you know, some other people can actually create. And it, it becomes way more important in a way because it's like, okay, so that's, you know, Heragdal, the, uh, the, the, the crime boss, well, okay, what does that mean? Like, what, what is, is he a crime family? Is he just got a gang? Is he running a whole bunch of like, you know, all of the twists like pickpockets? You know, tell me about this. What, what is this about? And I think that becomes extremely intricate. Hmm. Absolutely. And Jack and chat here is definitely on the same wavelength as me as far as a campaign taking place in a single mega city. That's, that's next time I run D and D. Well, right now I'm running Dark Sun, but that's next time I start a new campaign. That's what it's going to be. Nice, nice. So, one other aspect I wanted to talk about when it comes to maps, and this is going to kind of be more in the theory realm than anything else. There's a connection between this hobby and uh, you know, fantasy as a whole genre and history. And one of the greatest resources we have in studying history is maps. Uh, what what kind of connections to history do you see in, in role-playing uh, specifically, and, and how do you feel that maps kind of play into that connection? Is that is that something you have given thought to or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. But I also, I, I'm fortunate in that I did have a birthplace that was a Roman town in England. And so I'm there in like a place that's got so much history, 2000 years of history. In fact, my town was 2000 years old. And you, you get to live in how civilization grows how towns grow how they connect how roads actually connect to each other you know how uh, you know men from the ancient past 2000 years ago versus a thousand years ago would uh, you know handle certain obstacles in the terrain in the geography and so on and so forth so i think for me when i started drawing maps i was heavily influenced by the real ancient world so to speak around me because I was able to observe it, you know, literally, even right down to castles and things like that, which then immediately goes, yeah, but why? Why do these stairs go in this direction? Or why are these walls here? Or why is this keep placed over here? And so you just, you just, you're questioning it all of the time. Therefore, you're being influenced by it all of the time. Hmm. And so when I started drawing maps uh, on a more professional level, by the way, I do look back at my old maps and critique them because uh, some of my old maps definitely have failings um but nowadays when i'm drawing maps i look at the real world uh, in many ways honestly if i'm drawing a coastline i look at the real world coastlines there are some incredible coastlines out there um and you could get great influence on that or even islands and how islands are uh, you know formed and shaped and huddled together you can get great inspiration from that but then you can look at you know even just mountain ranges and forests and like where people have settled around those. 
to the shapes of cities and towns and how they've grown from a nucleus of like a Martin Bailey castle out from there. So I personally have taken huge inspiration from real world maps. In fact, honestly, um, one of my favorite maps of all time is a map of Boston from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And it had such a beautiful shape, either style of the hills and the way everything was approached was wonderful. But I looked at the, the Boston Harbor and I was like, wow, I'd never actually thought about drawing wharfs and like piers and things like that this way before. And so even right there, I'm, I'm drawing inspiration for just the shape of something and i do it now to this day in like nearly all of my coastal maps you know and that map keeps coming back to me so it doesn't matter if it's a world map a country map a region map a city map i i or i look very deeply at real world examples all of the time gotcha yeah that's and and this harkens all the way back to a conversation i had like two years ago um almost um in just you know talking about you know how you grew up and how it influenced uh kind of your your take on rpgs and the fact that you grew up in uh essentially the old world and in a town that was once under roman occupation uh i i can see that being extremely uh influential on kind of your obsession with roman history in particular but the the way that it's kind of manifested itself in in uh, your love of gaming as well is also very evident and very very cool. Um, I live in uh, the the southeastern United States, uh, where we have a lot of history. It doesn't go as far back, but I I feel a lot of that myself. Especially, you know, I'm from North Carolina. And I have a family that's been in North Carolina since the 1700s. Actually, the 1600s. Um, so I, I definitely feel you as far as kind of that that looking at where our, our roots came from and stuff like that being very influential. Uh, that's That, that well, kind I, of stuff fascinates I, I, me. And that, by the way, so, uh, Carolina is definitely a... It's kind of a beautiful area of the world. I lived in Louisiana, a little short way away, but it's, I lived there for six years. Wonderful part of the country. Um, but you you do have some good history there. Sure, it's not 2,000 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, you have some old buildings there. You have some old towns and cities there now. And you start to get that inspiration, even if it's honestly just a building shape, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it I once actually LARPed in a real castle back in England and we stayed there overnight and it was an intact castle. It wasn't a ruin. And we were down in the, the belly of this beast. We were in the, uh, the actual, uh, the cellars and everything there. And it gave me this huge understanding for not only corridors, the width, the height of them, uh, the doors, uh, like just the layout of the place, just soaking up inspiration from this all of the time. Gotcha. Yeah, I. That sounds like a ton of fun, LARPing in in an actual castle. It, it was insane fun, and you know, it's a sort of funny story about this is 
So this is the first time that, you know, my friends and I had ever done anything like this. And this was kind of like before there was even really LARPing in general. Um, and it was in this like sort of real castle. And, you know, we're there as a party. And at this point, all we've done is we've played a tabletop this whole time. But now we're all there. We've got our swords and we've got a little fo- well, foam swords and we've got our shields and everything. And we've got guys playing orcs in this dungeon. And we've got like candles to light the way. A, candles don't give off much light. No, That's the first all. thing I learned. <laughs> and second, apparently it's very easy for an orc to go and blow it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that's when you had a whole bunch of girls and boys going, ah, winning around this dungeon. Yeah, it did not go well. Oh, that's great. I actually, I know where my... my family's castle is in scotland so i wonder Ooh. if wonder if they would let us uh let us larp there on the isle of mull <laughs> nice nice i'm uh i'm re- i'm related to the mclean clan of duart uh so out on the isle of mull is duart castle and apparently at least according to some of the research I've seen, uh, I'm closely enough related that they would actually let me in. So, who knows? I have to make a trip out there. One someday. day you've got to make that happen. That sounds yeah. fantastic. Absolutely. That, and then I need to go down to Cross Plains and pick up the the trace of my uh, the side of the Howard family that spawned uh, Robert E. Howard. Okay, okay. I, I am, you've got fact, quite the lineage. Yes, I am I am distantly related to Robert E. Howard. Wow. And Alex Vixen in chat, you caught sight of Nora, which is uh, kind of rare because Nora's camera shy. She does not like to be on camera, but she's usually sleeping behind me. And she's gone now. <laughs> Do you have any, any uh, fur babies in your house? We do, and I'm actually surprised that they haven't popped up or you haven't heard them, because right, right, right before we connected for the stream, one of them was doing these, wow, wow, wow. And it's like, will you shut up? Will you shut up? Uh, but he must be sleeping somewhere. I've got a cat bed just right over my shoulder. And I half expected someone to jump up on the table over there at some <laughs> point, but they must be sleeping. Gotcha. So... When it comes to the actual kind of medium that you work in, you said that you used to do uh, just paper and ink, correct? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and these days it's mostly, uh, like, you're mostly working digital? I do. Um, and I have, like, I'm going to say no regrets for doing so. Uh, you know, ink and paper is, like, old school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ink and paper is extremely unforgiving. You mess up ink on paper, you, you done messed up. You know, it's there. And I've had a couple of maps where that's happened and there's not much you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, but the main thing that I noticed is when I got the digital tablet and I started drawing on that, it actually made me a better cartographer. And the reason was I could now make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I actually started to experiment more. Uh, it was freeing. I could really stretch. It was like, well, let me try this. You don't do that ink on paper. You stay in your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So unless obviously you're doodling off to one side, but on a commission, no, you don't You don't play around with that. But digitally, yeah, I could zoom all of the way in 
experiment with something, don't like it, delete it. You know, and I do that all of the time. And so the, the net result is way better than I would ever, ever, ever get ink on paper. It's mm -hmm. way more detailed and it's it's just way more, I, I want to say, I don't want to say experimental, mm -hmm. but it's more polished, if anything, at the end, because if I don't like it, get rid of it, draw it again. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, as we talked about again before we went on the air, you've worked with several people. You know, you mentioned Wolfgang Bauer, Monty Cook, but you've also worked with uh, some people who we hold very dearly here on uh, Rolling Bones. That's, of course, Frog God Games. So how did you get hooked up with that particular outfit of amazing people? Yeah, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I, I do know but I don't know how it took off to the degree that it did. I love the frogs a huge amount. I, every single one of them. They're a great, great, great group of people. Um, it was actually Zach Glazer that was the key mm -hmm. to this for me. Um, I did, so uh, Zach was originally out on his own and he did a box set called Whisper and Venom. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to draw a map for him. And he has actually, I think, the first client that said, give me your best. No, even better. Just don't worry about money. Just give me your best. And he created a new style that I've, I personally have never like done what he was asking for. So for me, it was the first time I ever started actually drawing this very Lord of the Rings style uh, approach. And... He actually ended up doing another one called Death and Taxes, and I drew the map for that too, and they actually connect together. And it ends up being this massive, massive, massive canvas. Well, time went by, and he ended up um, joining Frog God I, because of his products. Bill Webb like, looked at him, looked at the product, went, join me. And so he ends up, I think he's like the operating uh, manager now there or something, mm -hmm. or CEO or something. And I think because of that, they either needed a map or something happened and he reached out and said, Hey, will you do this? And I forget what, what the project was now, but of course I did it. Of course I did. And it, it ended up putting me in touch with Bill and me and Bill just hit it off. And then before you know it, it like they have a, a, a guy called, I think it's Robert Altbauer. I think that's his name. And he is their cartographer. It's his full-time job. I think he's Australian and he just churns out maps all day long. But then for the choice pieces, when they want something that like just makes players heads turn, they they'll ask me to do it. And it, it's just the relationship has got deeper and deeper and deeper over the years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Quest of doom, quest of doom. You know, funny enough, I was looking at quest of doom um, only yesterday Um and I was, I, I, I genuinely, genuinely, I have this project folder called Quest of Doom 4, and I knew it was for Frog God Games. And I was like, what would, what, what happened to these maps? And I, I have no knowledge of like how it was used or anything, but there was a lot of them. There was like, there's dozens of these maps that I did. Gotcha. Yeah, the. <clears throat> those guys have all you know they've been on the show at, at several different times including zach and uh i mean the work they do is just great and you know hitting it off with bill bill is one of the nicest guys i've ever had on the show and i i look forward to the day where i can meet all of them in person and game with them uh at at their tables at conventions 
that would be great because a you and I would get to meet too. Absolutely. But um, they they are like they are the true definition of a gaming family. They mm-hmm. genuinely, genuinely, genuinely are. They're all incredible, warm-hearted people. Every single one of them, and you they just give you good energy just being around them. I, I genuinely love them very dearly. Absolutely. See, we're we're just one step closer now to this becoming Frog God Games presents Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard. So, uh, <laughs> Zach, Bill, if you guys want to make it happen, you know where to find me. <laughs> they they are cool peeps. They are cool peeps. And Bill, I would give blood to Bill at this point. You know, he mm-hmm. he's a great guy. Absolutely. I don't know if he's my type, but I I might if you ask me. <laughs> so. What kind of projects are you working on right now? Is there anything that you've got uh, that you're that you're working on that you're able to talk about right now that that you're kind of wanting to hype up here? Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, so let, let's start with Frog. Um, Frog Art Games will be um, re-releasing Necropolis at some point this year. I I, I, I don't want to sort of talk to project details that I don't have all of the details for, but I'm drawing the Necropolis map for them. And I don't know if you remember this, Ryan, or are familiar with it, but um, a couple of years ago, I redrew uh, Teagle Manor. Mm-hmm. And it was a map that was 12 feet across because I did a battle map scale. Mm-hmm. And I vowed I would never do another one like it. Well, Bill Webb, got me on the hook for Necropolis, which is now 90 <laughs> inches in size. It's a, a huge map. That's my main focus for Q1 here. And it's basically a dungeon. It's an Egyptian-inspired dungeon. The actual uh, adventure itself was written by Gary Gygax. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're re-releasing it for 5E. They're going through all of the writing, polishing it up, adding some depth where needed, You know, cleaning up the text where needed. And I'm drawing the main ending boss fight map for that one. So that's the main, main, main project I've got going on. And then at the same time, I'm working on for... Uh, Troll Lord Games, uh, a Castle Keeper's Guide. Now that is 12 maps. They're doing this almost like the, the old school Dungeon Master's Guide, where it's almost like how you put together like worlds and countries and populations. And like, you know, this is a Thorpe and this is a Hamlet and this is a village. Well, I'm actually drawing all of those. This is a Martin Bailey Castle. So, and I'm doing them on one canvas because I think it will look like super sexy poster. Hmm. So that's the other main project that I've got going on. And then there's going to be, a Viking map that I'm doing, a medieval Viking map, it, it is uh, here in Active Works and here in Q1. Uh, and then later this year, um, I'm going to be doing some kind of huge city map. Um, so, yeah, just plenty, plenty in the, in the works. Hmm. Gotcha. And as we're kind of, you know, getting towards the end of our time here, uh, one last thing I do want to talk about... Um, because it's a great way to, you know, support the work that you're doing. Uh, you of course have your Patreon. So when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the work that you do, what does, uh, you know, what, what kind of benefits do your patrons get, uh, when, when they sign up to, uh, to support you? Great question. So, uh, okay. So a few points, one is every single month, 
I will give all of the patrons one of um, the maps that I've done in the past, you know, in high res sort of digital. But then I do guides of how to draw. I'll do a video guide on how to draw a map. Uh, for instance, over the last couple of months, it's been how to draw hills, how to draw trees, uh, how to draw mountains. So you can actually start putting together your own maps. And I actually give out my own brush sets and PNGs. So it's like, here's some of my hills and my trees and my, you know, uh, buildings and so on. So you can actually now truly build your own maps and maybe add to it as you go. And then um, I always share with the patrons and only the patrons um, something I've done in the past that I'm maybe not even that proud of. Maybe an earlier map that the public has never seen. And I'll give a little story behind it as well so that that will be something hey i did this back in the 90s and i'm not quite sure why i drew it on yellow paper but let me tell you about my process here so uh, i actually uh, i give that out to each month so it's really it's about here's a here's a, a copy of something i've done in the past here's something that i've done with a story behind it here are the tools for actually creating your own map Here's the actual guide for how to actually draw as well. Here's a video guide for how to do this. And then the slightly higher tiers, um, drawing Rome, um, the actual city of Rome in my style. And once a month we get together, I draw, we just do a hangout. Um, and so the patrons can get to sort of hang out with me as I'm drawing. And we just get to talk, you know, about the mapping or anything else at the time as well. Gotcha. And I see here, uh, up at the the top tier, you're you're currently working on recreating ancient Rome in a That's live stream, which yeah. that sounds amazing. That's going to be huge. It's going to be a huge um, map. There, there, there was a gentleman that was alive around the 1800s or so. I forget his name, uh, which is bad of me. But he he drew Rome in a very different style. Because, um, but it was, I also remember seeing this huge poster of it. It was like five feet across and I fell in love. I'm going to recreate it in my style, but with way more detail. Gotcha. Awesome. Well... Yeah, and once again, in, in chat right now, I just dropped the link here, but for those of you who are listening or uh, you know catching this on YouTube and you didn't quite catch the thing pop up in chat, uh, patreon.com slash Alyssa Faden is where you can find it. Um, three tiers here, $5, $10, and $25 per month. Uh, seems like a great value and, you know... Uh, sounds like a lot of awesome things are happening in your community. Uh, a lot of members of your community are actually here in chat right now, and they've been great this evening. So, guys, thank you for uh, for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the Rolling Bones experience. I had a blast. Thank you so much. And thank you for all, all of my fans out there for coming and hanging out. I really, really, really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, Alyssa... Um, as we're wrapping up here, you know, we've talked about Patreon. We've talked about your upcoming projects. Is there anything else you want to plug real quick before uh, we close it out for the evening? No, I just, I thank you so much for your hospitality tonight. Um, Alyssa Faden, by the way, is the, the handle on pretty much everything. Instagram, Facebook, um, and YouTube. And we're going to be growing the YouTube channel here shortly. I put all of my videos there. And I've actually got a video guy now helping out. Uh, just making sure everything's clean. It's got an intro. It's got an outro. Uh, all of my Twitch 
uh, videos go on there, but look for the lot of the shortfall contents that I'm releasing. I've actually started critiquing my own maps. Well, I'll sit down, I'll look at one of my maps I did 20 years ago, and I'll, I'll, I'll be nice where I did something good, but then I will pull it apart where I, I've changed uh, how I draw things. So I encourage you just to check that out. Gotcha. Cool. Well, guys, that is going to do it for this uh, evening's episode of Rolling Bones. Uh, Alyssa, thank you again for coming on. Uh, just to let you guys know what's coming up this week, uh, this Saturday for Danishes and Dragons, uh, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about 5th edition and how it handles weapons and armor. Uh, some of my issues with what they have done to weapons and armor, some of the ways that I think it's uh, a little bit bland in 5e, and what kind of changes I would make. Uh, Wargaming Recon, thank you. You're fantastic. Uh, I am just a man with a microphone and a camera. Um, next week, uh, we're going to be off because wife and I are actually moving. Uh, so stay tuned for some of the stuff that we've got going on. Uh, that's why painting content's been a little bit lax recently, but that's what's coming up. Once we're in the new place, we'll be back on our regular, you know, scheduled programming. And I hope you guys will join us then. Uh, but until then, and until Danishes and Dragons this Saturday, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.